We have somewhat of a lengthy passage this morning as we are in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we're going we're gonna to really run through, well, 16 verses. And so almost the half of the chapter. But this morning as we come into this, the subject is, is, is split in some ways, but it largely deals with how we treat, how we care for widows in the church. Now, if you're not a widow, if you don't have any widows you're related to, this doesn't you know, give you the freedom to take a 30-minute nap in preparation for being all guns for the quarterly business meeting. That's just not going to happen, right? Because we realize these instructions are given to the whole church so that we might study and implement these characteristics into all of our lives. And so as we think broadly on the subject of widows and their care and their provision, maybe your mind goes to Acts chapter 6. You'll remember that, that the church is just booming and exploding. They have all of the right problems there in the beginning. They don't have this division of labor. They're seeing people come to faith in such incredible numbers that it is blowing them away, and they're faced with this question of how do we care for everybody? How do we make sure that everybody's well cared for? Well, the, the, the older Jewish women, they're getting their daily allotment of food. They're well cared for. Maybe some of them are even getting to be a little bit rotund. But the Hellenists, the Greek women, are not. You can imagine they're you know, sitting around and, and they're having this conversation. And, and the Jewish woman says, oi vey, this is so much food. And the Hellenist woman says, ay, 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 ay. Or you know, whatever they say, the oi vey, it doesn't really have a, an approximate. But what they realize is that the Hellenists, the Greek women, weren't being cared for. They weren't being provided for. And they're complaining. Obviously, they're hungry. And so they go, and the, the men come together, and they assign deacons, right? These, these prototypes. They assign servants, which we now see realized in the full-fledged office of deacon, largely to care for the widows. And so this goes out to, to these men in our congregation who are deacons. And the question that should be on your mind as we go through this is, how are you fulfilling the mission which was laid upon these early prototype deacons? I mean, when is the last time you ministered to a widow? And hopefully that continues to burn in your brain and leads to action on your part. But we also see a call to families. Remember that Paul, writing to Timothy, has helped him to deal with and address a number of the issues here in Ephesus and last week, as we looked at it, Timothy was in some ways really struggling with how is he, he, as a young man, should respond when people question him. So Timothy's likely in his mid-30s, and he has a group, contingent of older people in the church that they're not buying into everything Timothy's selling. They are attacking him based on the grounds of him being young. In chapter 4, verse 11, Paul tells Timothy not to let anyone, or verse 12 rather, not to let anyone despise him for his youth. But instead, he is to set an example. He says, I want you to set an example in conduct. I want you to set an example in speech, in love, and faith, and purity. He is to set an example for them. In returning to this idea somewhat, in chapter 5, verse 1, he starts and he says, do not rebuke an older man. He tells him, he says, look, we've still got this problem. This has just been a, you know, somewhat of a couple sentences removed. But Timothy, when you, when you go to these people, I've already told you that you need to be an example to them in these five ways, but don't rebuke an older man. Now, this word rebuke, I don't know what picture it paints in your mind, 
I mean, it, it, for you, it might be this idea of never tell them they're doing anything wrong. I mean, they walk into the women's restroom and be like, that's neat, that's novel, good job. You know, it's to the left, that's, but it's, you know, I don't want to rebuke you, I just, I just can't do that, you know. They run into your car in the parking lot, you think, that's a very creative parking job, I wouldn't have necessarily done that, it's okay, you've got insurance, I've got insurance, we'll let Don Grisham settle it. You know, maybe, maybe it's, 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 this is what you think of, or you think of your father and when he did something wrong and you went to tell him, Dad, you know, you didn't do this the right way, and he's like, raw, 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 and just kind of ate you right then and there, and you're like, God, no, no way, not going to rebuke an older man. But the picture that Paul paints when he utilizes this word rebuke is, this is what he's telling him not to do, okay? He says, Timothy, when you find an older man doing something wrong, you don't walk over to them, find their head over here and just go, and, and just stomp on them with your words. Don't do that. When you see them doing something wrong, don't get out your proverbial two-by-four of tongue lashing and just beat them over the head with it. That's what you don't want to do, Right? So the question Timothy has is, why about all these two-by-fours? What am I supposed to do now? He says, instead of rebuking them, instead of beating them over the head with your words, encourage them. And he, he brings it into this familial metaphor. He says, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. You see, Timothy is being written to in the city of Ephesus. They have this heightened understanding of honor and shame and and Paul, in some ways, is calling back this idea of the fifth commandment. of You need to honor your mother and your father. He's reminding Timothy of that, and he tells him, he says, look, you need to respond to these older men who are attacking you. You need to respond to them who, in some ways, are undermining your authority as you would a father. You need to uphold the fifth commandment of honoring your mother and your father, even in your interaction of those who are adamantly opposed to you. Even in your interaction of those who seek to undermine your authority. So you need to go to them. Don't show them how much more you know than they know. Don't talk to them about your uh, authority that Paul has given you, this apostle-like authority that Paul has bestowed on Timothy. Go to them. Implore them. He's already been told that he should be an example to them in conduct, speech, love, faith, and purity. And now he has to go to them and encourage them as he would a father. And then he turns and he goes to the other end of the spectrum. And he says, look, now, when you encounter younger men, you need to respond to them as brothers. This is interesting. He's, he's showing Timothy how he fits into the created order there in Ephesus. He says, encourage the older men. Treat the younger men as brothers. Treat them, in some sense, as equals. Just as you are looked down on because of your age, because people consider you to be young, don't make that same mistake as you relate to the other men in the church. And then he says, as older women, as mothers. Now, for Timothy, this struck a really good chord. You'll remember that Timothy's father was a pagan, but Timothy's mother was a Christian. His grandmother was a Christian. He has this this direct lineage of faith in his life. So when he thinks of relating to an older woman as mother, he's thinking of this one who passed on faith to him, this one who poured out her life as a demonstration of good faith to him. And then he turns, he says, younger women as sisters in all purity. 
Now, I didn't have the privilege of being raised with sisters, but I, I married a, a woman who is a sister to uh, a much older brother. My brother-in-law is, is three or four inches taller than me and outweighs me by about, well, it depends. He's, you know, kind of different seasons of life, but maybe 75, 50 to 75 pounds. He doesn't listen to these. It's okay. My mother-in-law is here today. You can just, you know, don't tell him. Ethan, we need to cut this at the end. Um, anyway, and so this whole thing of, of relating to younger sisters or younger women as sisters in all purity is this idea that, that Timothy as a single man could have been led astray. He could have seen some attractive young Ephesian woman and, and said, look, this is really what I want to be about, really what I want to be interested in. And that would have been fine. That would have been okay if Timothy got married. But what Paul wants him to ensure is, is in his interactions with these women, he considers them to be his sister. Don't see them as some sexual object, but see them as sisters. See them as this person that you're so concerned with their purity. You're so concerned with their relationship of Jesus that you see them as your sister in the faith. And that's how Paul has told him to respond to those people who would, would seek to tear him down. But now he moves in, and in 3 through 16, he really breaks apart what it is to be a widow, how they should be cared for, and whose responsibility it is to care for them. In 3 through 8, Paul really moves through and he discusses what it is to be a widow. And what we're going to see in 9 through 16 is more of how to deal with younger widows. Younger widows. So Paul writes in verse 3, he says, honor widows who are truly widows. Now this is I was teaching a Bible study on Wednesday night, and I said, you know, we've all heard the expression, uh, a friend in need is a friend indeed, and you could use that same thing for widows. A widow in need is a widow indeed, and Paul shows us what it is to describe that need here. He says, look, honor widows if they're truly widows, and this plants in our mind that there are some who are masquerading in some sense or are not eligible to be considered as widows as Paul defines it. And we're going to find out exactly how he defines that as we move through this. Because in verse 4 he says, Look, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So Paul looks at it and he addresses his situation, and likely in Ephesus there were a number of women to be cared for and being cared for by the church. And it was a burden on the church financially. They were supporting these women. So Paul comes in and he addresses this situation. And he says, look, some of these women have families. Some of these women have children. Some of these women have grandchildren. And what their children and their grandchildren need to hear is this is your responsibility. They're their children and their grandchildren had largely turned the care and provision for these women over to the church. In some sense, they said, oh, what a relief. Somebody will take and do something with her. I mean, what a relief. Somebody will care for her. Oh, you, you guys don't know what you signed up for. But I'm glad it's not my responsibility anymore. And Paul writes him and says, you call those people into your office and you say, what is your problem? You call those people into your office and you tell them, this is your responsibility. 
He reminds them that this is the woman who gave you life. My mom was fond of saying, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of this world. I always saw that as kind of an empty threat, but I, you know, I don't know. Maybe she's got a gun in her apron. But Paul writes him and says, look, these children, these grandchildren, they are abdicating their responsibility. They are giving it over to the church, and they are just happy with that. Paul calls him and he, he alerts him to the issue at hand. He says, look, it's not just their responsibility. It's not just their, their society's responsibility, but this is pleasing in the sight of God. This honors God when they act in accordance with the fifth commandment of honoring their father and honoring their mother. One of the sad and shocking things we see more often in our society is the increasing number of grandmothers and grandfathers and great-grandmothers and great-grandparents caring for their grandchildren of being the sole provider, of being the one who's having to raise those children. Now, now the kudos to you if you're a grandparent or a great-grandparent or an aunt or an uncle and you're raising a child that, that, is, that you didn't give birth to, that you didn't bring into this world. But what we see here in the text is that's not how God intended it to be. He intended families to have some type of responsibility. The responsibility is on the family, but unfortunately we see over and over again families not taking that responsibility. I mean, that is just contrary to the Word of God. It is not the church's responsibility. It is not our government's responsibility. It is the family's responsibility. Now, maybe some of you in here, you have, you have a mother, you have a great-grandmother, and you should think about her. And, and for you, the great relief is that she's had some type of insurance, she had saved well, or the government in some sense is taking care of her. And you look at that and you say, oh, what a sweet relief. It's not on the church because that would be awkward. It's, but it's on the government, it's on this, this entity that I don't really have any, any interaction with other than just saying, thank you very much, yes, I've got to pay taxes. And see, that's, it's still on you. Whether or not you recognize that doesn't matter. It is the family's responsibility to provide and to care for the mother. It's the family's responsibility and responsibility to care for and provide for the mother and the grandmother. Man, this is, this is a difficult text as we walk through because our society has changed so much. We see so many programs and patterns of involvement that, that remove these things from our hands. And I'm not saying, you know, run out and cancel your insurance and call your kids and say, Great news for me, I'm cashing out my policy. Bad news for you, your, your kids are going to college on loans. You know, and you might want to go ahead and get that second mortgage because mama likes to live it up. There needs to be some type of, of joint pattern of, of doing things that are sensible, but still the family maintaining this relationship and providing. Man, your family, you can provide for your, your mother, your grandmother, your extended family in ways that, that government and and these institutions never can, never will be able to. And the family has some hand in this. Paul, moving in verse 5 and 6, turns to this idea of really true and false widows. He says in verse 5, he says, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has her hope set on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Paul starts moving into not really a checklist of, of things you have to have in your life to be considered a widow, but more characteristics and attributes. He says, look, if you're a widow, then you need to be left 
all alone. In some sense, he's drawing on what he's talked about in the previous verse and saying, look, you don't have family to care for and provide for you. You're all alone. As you apprise your situation, there is no family there to provide for you. And, and this is what, your characteristic, what the characteristics of your life need to be like. You need to be one who has completely and continually set your hope on God. You need to be one who relies on God. And you can see that she set her hope on God and continuously, night and day, she offers prayers, she offers supplications. See, this woman's hope isn't set on some third party being benevolent coming in. This woman's hope isn't on even her church coming alongside and offering provision and care and support. But this woman's hope is on God. And it's to God she prays night and day. Paul uses this, this device here to show us that her life is filled with continuous prayer, night and day. She's continually going before God with requests. She's continually going before God for prayers of transformation in her life. And on the flip side of that, he says, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. He says, look, there are, there are women in, there, in your group in Ephesus who are all alone and their heart is set on glorifying God in everything they do. It's God whom they hope, it's God whom they make requests. But there's this other group of women. And man, they're just, they're living for themselves. They're living to receive joy and pleasure on their own. He says they are self-indulgent. They're selfish. They want the church to provide for them and to keep giving them more and more and more so that they can be satisfied, so that they can be cared for with giving no thought to anyone else. And this is how he characterizes this person. He says they are dead even while they're alive. He says their selfish characteristics, the way they live their lives, reveals that they are rotting and necrotic on the inside. They're dead. They take in air, they come in, they make requests, but the evidence of their life reveals in actuality that they are dead on the inside. Paul moves in, in 7 and 8, he says, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. He says, look, you need to tell the families that this is how they're supposed to act. He says, some of these people might be ignorant, some of these people might be recent converts to Christianity, and they don't know that they're, that they're moms. They don't know that their grandmothers mothers are their responsibility. You need to show people that this is what they're supposed to do. Tell them how they're supposed to behave and then show them how to do it. Command and teach. For what purpose? So they may be without reproach. So that when they stand before the judgment throne of God, they aren't found to be wanting in that regard. So that when that God evaluates their life and he evaluates their deeds, they aren't found to be wanting and in need in that regard. Command and teach. And then Paul turns and he realizes that there will be those in the community that don't do everything they're supposed to do. Not just non-Christians that are masquerading, but actual Christians in the community that aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And this is what Paul says about them in verse 8. He said, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What a difficult thing to receive. 
Paul says, look, you go to them, you command, you teach these things. But the reality is that if there's anybody in your church, if there's anybody in your community fellowship that doesn't provide for their family, whether it's somebody living under their roof or somebody they're related to that they know, that they know is in need. And they just look at them and they say, you know what, that's not really my responsibility. There's another who's closer or it's just awkward, it's messy, they're in need, they don't smell good, they don't bathe well, I don't like the way their hair smells, they're always moving my clothes. Whatever situation it is, let them know that if they don't provide for those needs, it's just worse than an unbeliever. Now Paul doesn't say, look, they're going to lose their salvation, but what he does say is he offers this commentary on their salvation. He says, look, as he apprised his culture, he said, look, non-Christians, pagans, they care for and they provide for their relatives. This is something that, that God has born into them. This is something that, that even in this Roman Greek culture that they did, they provided for. It was not uncommon for people to provide and to care for their, their parents. Paul says, look, but you're a Christian. For you not to provide, for you not to care for your family... This is so much worse than a non-Christian. Because you, as one who are redeemed, is engaging in behavior of those who are pagans. You, as one who is redeemed, one who has the law inscribed upon your heart, who has the testimony of the Holy Spirit, you do wrong with the knowledge of what it is to do right. You are under the conviction of the Spirit, and you are engaging in behavior that is completely contrary to the confession that you made and you're engaged in behavior that is worse, worse than an unbeliever. Now Paul moves into this, these characteristics really in earnest here in 9 and 10. And he's discussing this, this enrollment process. He says in verse 9, he says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a good reputation, or a reputation of good works, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Paul effectively says, let her be enrolled if she is Mother Teresa. I mean, in some ways, as we look at this list, we're like, man, mom was good, but I remember that time she burned biscuits, and oh man, it was just rough, and I just, you know, sweet. I'm going to take a vacation. I don't have to care for mom because, I mean, she breaks like two of these things. I know she's not into feet washing. She's got this thing on feet. I, uh, hospitality. No, we never have people over. She's not, no. Reputation for good work. She had a reputation. And so this idea that is, 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 is Timothy looks at this list, Paul isn't writing him and saying, look, now, compare your mother or your grandmother to this list and see if she's met out in this. Instead, he says, look, the nature, the tenor of her life should be that you can see her within this. And so the question becomes, what is this list that she could be enrolled in? See, one of the things we have to dispel right off the bat is that Paul isn't writing and saying, look, church, he's not coming to us and saying, Ridgecrest, don't give anybody any assistance if they have these things. Or if they, in this case, don't have these things evidence in their life. Or coming to you and your family and saying, look, if your mom doesn't have any these things in, your, in her life, it's okay for you. You can take vacations instead of caring for her. What he's saying is, in order for them to be enrolled, put on this permanent list of support, 
where the church takes on almost in Ephesus a full responsibility of caring for and providing for the need. And this is what she needs to be like. This is what she needs to be like. These are the characteristics that need to be in her life. It is still on the church to provide and to care for people. Man, that doesn't remove our responsibility for doing and engaging in those behaviors. But what he's saying is if she's going to be permanently enrolled on this list, then this is what she needs to look like. He starts off, he says, look, don't put her on there if she's not at least 60 years of age. Now, we talked about last week that in in the Roman and Greek culture that anybody 40 and, and younger was considered to be young. And so everybody in that age group said, yes, I've been telling my kids I'm young. I've been telling them I'm hip. And, and, and so we just rejoiced in that. But as we look at it on the other side, we see that anybody 60 years of age and older was considered to be old. I mean, it's, you're much more quiet on that. <laughs> Nobody's rejoicing. And all you people in the middle are just alive. But as we look at this, Paul writes, he says, look, anybody that is 60 or older is eligible to be on this list. Now, the understanding in their culture was that if you were that age or older, you weren't going to get married again, uh, that you were just supposed to devote yourself to the ministry of the church. Life life expectancy was much shorter and so he said, look, if she, unless she's at least 60, don't put her on this list. She needs to be the wife of one husband. Now, this is an inverted order to those things we talked about when we discussed the deacons and the elders. You remember it said, husband of one wife. It's not a reference to polygamy, polyandry, or remarriage or divorce. It's a reference to intensity of devotion. Paul is saying that as she lived out her lives with her husband, that she was devoted to him. There was no air of scandal. She was devoted to her husband. She only had eyes for him. She's the husband of one wife, or the wife of one husband. He says she's got a reputation for good works, that as you look at this woman, and you look at these lists that is brought up, she's got a reputation for good works. She cared for her kids. She showed hospitality. Her home was a place of invitation. She opened it up. She used those things that God gave her to minister to those in need, just as now she is in need. He goes on, and he offers really this, this highest word on her acts of service. He says, look, she's the type of woman who has washed the feet of the saints. You'll remember that as we studied John 13 together, one of the words of commentary on that is, you could not order a Jewish slave to wash your feet. It was the lowest, most humbling form of service. Jesus did it freely for the disciples. And he's saying, look, this is the tenor of this woman. She's self-giving. She's humble to a fault. This is what she needs to personify. She cared for the afflicted, even as now she is in affliction. She offered and devoted herself to every good work. We make much of the Proverbs 31 woman. But do you see the beauty of this woman in this passage? She gives her life to service. She gives her life to ministering to others and to not meeting her own needs. Paul says, look, don't enroll them if they're not this. And then he turns to younger widows. So the question that that rang out for everybody else would be, well, what about all the other women that want to be on this list? And Paul offers him two words on that. He says, don't enroll younger widows. Don't let these young women be on there. 
<clears throat> he gives two reasons. He says, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. You see, there was something at play in this, in this process of being enrolled on this list that, that they were signing on to remain single. They were signing on, they were dedicating themselves to the ministry of the Word of God, and when they signed on to this list for the provision of the church, they were signing on this list to engage in service, to engage in being used by the church over and over and over again. They were signing themselves in some ways of being ministers of this church, certainly ministers of the Word of, the God, of, the word of God in their service. But Paul says, look, when we look at younger women the situation that we found is that some of these women, they bail on that. Some of these women, they bail on that. And instead, they want to get married. He says their passions draw them away from Christ. They desire to marry. And as a result of that, they receive judgment. They receive judgment for what reason? For having abandoned their former faith. You know, when we look at that passage, Paul isn't writing and saying, look, if, you, if, you, if you've got younger widows and they want to get remarried, that this is a big problem and let's just kick them to the side because in a couple of verses he's going to say, younger widows get remarried. So he's not referencing remarriage. What he's referencing is a specific type of remarriage. These women who in the midst of their need, in the midst of their want, in the midst of their affliction, look to non-Christian men, look to pagan men, for relief. He says they abandon their former faith. These women who abandon the faith because of the security afforded and offered them by non-Christians. He says, look, don't enroll them because of this. Don't enroll them because of this. Secondly, he says, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying that what they should not. So Paul, in some sense, he, he suggests, he says, all right, I'll, I'll go there with you. Say they don't remarry. Say they don't buy in and, and want support from a non-Christian guy. He says, this is what's going to happen. You enroll these younger women, you fully support them, you don't call for them to work, to engage in this behavior. When they go through the process of going door to door and ministering on behalf of the church, it's going to resound in gossip. Amen. It's going to resound in gossip. It's going to resound in, in idleness. They don't have anything else to do because you're meeting all of their needs. Don't do that. Don't do that. And he shows this this really road towards ruin. They learn to be idlers going from house to house. Imagine that, learning to be idle. That I don't know how you do that, but it's something I'd like to learn to do. You learn to quit doing stuff. I don't know what that looks like. But these women have apparently taken it up as an educational endeavor. They have learned to be lazy. They have learned to sit there and do nothing. They've learned to be idle. He says, besides that, they're gossips, they're busybodies. Everywhere they go, they spread information that they shouldn't have about people they don't know because they enjoy it. So that's what this is going to lead to. Don't enroll younger women. And he offers a corrective in verse 14. 
He says, so I would have younger women to marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. He says, look, encourage these young women in your group that they should remarry. Encourage these young widows in your church to, to find out a godly man who they could marry. For what purpose? So they could bear children, so they could manage their households, so they could give the adversary no occasion for slander. Man, Satan is, is working. He was working in Ephesus to stir up problems in these young widows, to, to lead them to follow their passions instead of following Christ, and he was calling on them to abandon their faith. And the word Paul says is in verse 15, he says, look, some have already strayed. Some have already strayed to follow after Satan. Paul gives us here a word on the provision of widows, but he really gives us keen insight into how a church should function and should operate. And then he comes back to this word in verse 16. He says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Paul returns to this idea that the widows are ultimately the responsibility of the family unit, not the church. Do you see that? Paul comes to it and he says, look, it's not the responsibility of the church because if the church was the sole provision for the widows, it would bankrupt it. This word burdened he used here has a financial uh, connotation to it. He says, don't let the church be burdened by the care and provision, sole provision for all the widows in the church. That's the family's responsibility. The church can't handle this. It can't sustain the burden. And as we look at this passage, the question becomes, as we evaluate our contemporary setting, who we should help, who we should assist. This is a radically radically difficult question to answer. How much help do we give? How often do we give help? I met with Philip this week, and we spent two hours talking about this exact thing. Do we offer help? Absolutely. How much help do we give and to whom? It depends situation to situation. And the difficult thing especially is somebody inside of our church, somebody who is a member of our faith family who is in need. How do we handle these situations? And I don't have notes to, to, to go on, so I'm going off on a limb here. How do we handle these situations when somebody comes in and they want help? And we've helped them over and over and over again. The life situation's not getting any better. Nothing's changing. They refuse to take any direction or leave from the church. See, this is when it gets especially difficult. Because the church should be caring. It should be meeting the needs of its members. But it cannot be burdened by any one family. And this is a really difficult thing to go through. Maybe some of you are looking around saying, why is he talking about me and my family? I'm not talking about any family. I'm talking about all of us. We all need to be cared for. But none of us is any more important than our other brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of us are certainly more enjoyable to spend time with. I love to spend time with Justin. Justin doesn't love to spend time with me. But man, these are questions we are seeking to answer. We are praying that God would lead us to answer. And let me encourage you that if God has, has, has worked in your life, that if you are sensitive, that if you care to be involved 
with meeting the needs of the people in our church, meeting the needs of people in our community. Man, come speak to me. Come speak to Philip. We badly need people to be involved with benevolence. One of the marks that we'll be judged for is how we met the needs of our community. One of the marks of what we will be judged for is how we met the needs of our body. Paul addressed that situation in Ephesus. There were people that were taking advantage of the system. They loved being on this list as widows, but there were others who could meet their needs. And so Paul interjects wisdom into the situation in Ephesus. We are still addressing these same situations today for how to help and who to help and when to help. Man, this is the great news. And this is the the news that, that we can't provide to any member, but that God provides to all of us. You start asking the question of, why is God so captivated? And why is Paul addressing this issue of of helping widows, of helping those in affliction? Because God is captivated with that. Because God is caught up in that idea. We read in Psalm 68 and verse 5 that God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widows. Is God in his holy habitation. God is thoroughly caught up with this idea of ministering to those in need. And amen that God ministered to us in need. That the greatest need that any of us could have is in salvation. That God looked into our lives, that he saw that we were lost in darkness, that we were wandering around and could not find our way, and he showed us a light in the darkness. That God took on flesh, that he came as as a perfect one, that he lived a perfectly sinless life. And he died on a cross to cover as an atonement for my sins, for your sins. That even while you were yet sinning, that God in eternity past set this thing in motion so that he could call you into light. And God is concerned with the fatherless. God is concerned with the widows. He is concerned with those in affliction. And God demonstrates that great care to us in that while we were under the affliction of sin, he sent his son to die for us. And he extends to all of us forgiveness, provision, and care. Let me pray for us.